Morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles, you can go to John chapter 19. We'll get there in just a second, but I want to introduce myself. My name is Jordan. If I haven't met you, so glad uh, that you're here and joining us. We are continuing in our Easter series called Cries from the Cross, where today we're going to look at Jesus' fifth cry. It's two words. It's, I thirst. I thirst. Now, before we get there, I want to set the the ground a little bit for us here. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. What this entire series has taught us is that Jesus has always been in total control. Those very words of Jesus mean that everything that happened to him on that very first Good Friday, so think about it, all of the physical pain from the beatings, the crown of thorns thrust upon his head, the nails being driven into his hands and his feet, all of the emotional and mental pain of being mocked and spat upon, all of the spiritual pain that Jesus endured when his father turned his face away from him as he took upon the sins of the world, all of that was voluntarily accepted, voluntarily endured with joy by Jesus Christ for the glory of the Father in heaven and for the eternal well-being of you and I. Nothing that happened to Jesus on that day caught him by surprise. None of it was unforeseen. All of it was anticipated and taken into account by Jesus when he made that fateful, beautiful, yet difficult prayer in Gethsemane saying, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And that rings true throughout the entirety of Jesus' passion. So through his arrest, his appearance before Pilate, during the brutal treatment that he got from the soldiers while he hung on the cross in agony. Know that Jesus Christ was not a helpless victim. No, he was the almighty, sovereign son of God, voluntarily submitting himself to humiliation and suffering, laying down his life by his own accord. He could have stopped it at any time. And that's the picture we see of Jesus in the Gospels, and it's the picture we see as Jesus pleads and says this fifth cry from the cross, I thirst. And so with that, let's read our text. We're going to go John 19, verses 28 to 29, and we'll start to unpack this together. Here we go. After this, so after Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Knowing that all was now finished. Interesting. He said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A bowl full of vinegar stood there, So they put a sponge full of vinegar on hyssop and held it to his mouth. This is Jesus consciously fulfilling the plan of God. On the cross, the work has now been completed. His suffering was coming to an end and his life was about to end. And so to fulfill the scriptures, Jesus says, I thirst. It's a scene full of total devotion and commitment to the Father's will for his life. 
Additionally, you might have noticed there in brackets, John put, this was to fulfill the scripture. John here is referring to two verses primarily, uh, both in the Psalms, one being Psalm 22, which we'll get to in a bit, the other being Psalm 69:21, which says this, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Sound familiar? It's the exact picture of what's occurring on the cross. At the declaration of Jesus' thirst, the, th- the soldiers raise a sponge soaked in vinegar to Jesus' lips. The, the point in starting this way is to show you and to show everyone that Jesus didn't come out of nowhere. Jesus is the very person whom the scriptures continually pointed to. Anyone in attendance who knew the scriptures at all would know that this was the Messiah. In reliving scenes from Israel's past, Jesus is declaring that he is the way of redemption. He is the only author of salvation. Their anticipation of the Messiah was now being firmly realized in the person and work of Jesus. Full redemption can now be found in him alone, thus declaring his thirst is fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures. It's testifying that he is the long awaited Messiah. And with that in mind, I want us to look at three things this morning when it comes to Jesus saying, I thirst. The first is a physical thirst. The second, a spiritual thirst. And the third, thirst quenchers. We'll get real practical. So if you're taking notes, I'll give you a second to write that down. I'm going to grab a drink because I thirst. That's so bad. I feel like when I became a dad, these jokes just started coming out of me. It's awful. Okay. So in this moment, when Jesus says, I thirst, both Jesus' humanity and his divinity are on display. Remember, Jesus is fully God and at the same time, fully man. Ah, kind of hurts our brains to comprehend that. His humanity is showing here through his physical agony through the physical dehydration he's experiencing. Like, think about it. The last time he probably had a sip of anything was hours ago, maybe even as far back as the Last Supper. And to not drink for a few hours for us is difficult enough. But when you start to think about the physical treachery that Jesus had been through, like, he's got to be so dehydrated. Historically, it's said that Jesus' whole experience of being arrested and being put on trial and going to the cross lasted upwards of 20 hours. And at this point, it's about three in the afternoon. He had been hanging on the cross since nine. So for six hours, he's been hanging there throughout the heat of the day. And I'm not talking about April in North Vancouver where we're wearing a sweater to stay warm. This is April in Jerusalem with the sun beating upon him. More than that, before this, he's asked to walk up this long, winding road called the Via Della Rosa while carrying a heavy wooden beam on his back that had the skin whipped off of it. To simply say that Jesus was thirsty would be an understatement. Psalm 22 prophesies about this, verse 15, saying, my mouth is dried up like potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me 
in the dust of death. Psalm 22 is describing dehydration. Jesus hanging there, his work complete, his life coming to an end, and so thirsty. The combination of Jesus' blood loss, his exhaustion, his nervous tension, his exposure to the elements has generated a raging thirst within him. Jesus' cry, I thirst, was not a polite, hey, can I, can I have a glass of water? No, it was a cry of agony. Jesus' thirst while hanging in on the cross in our place showed the reality and the intensity of the physical suffering he endured for us. And here's what's also true. His thirst enabled him to know that all was now complete. And what's really interesting about this whole thing, if you know the Gospels well, um, in Mark's Gospel, you might remember On the road to the cross, Jesus was offered a drink. He was offered wine that was mixed with myrrh. And I got to imagine, Jesus was still thirsty at this time, but here Jesus refuses it. See, one of the primary uses of myrrh, uh, particularly when it came to crucifixion, is that it would act as a sedative. It would act as a sedative to help ease the pain and the agony of the crucifixion. And also, Rome would use it to help sedate the criminals so they wouldn't have one last chance at at crime or to break free or rebel. But at this time, Jesus refuses it. Why? Well, because Jesus wasn't going to let anyone think that it was a sedative that brought him through the cross. He wanted everyone to know that he was willing to take on the full brunt of the cross. That he was willing to be a lamb being led to slaughter in obedience to the Father for the salvation of you and I. It was his love for the Father and his love for you and I that brought him to the cross, not a sedative. But now... Hours later, he's thirsty, and so they hand him this bitter drink, almost as a mockery. And this fulfills the prophecy in the Psalms. John is showing us this is no coincidence. This is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. And in this moment, approaching his death, Jesus at last accepts a drink. Why? To meet his physical needs, to fulfill the scriptures, and hear this, to moisten his mouth, to help clear his throat so that he might speak clearly and loudly his next words a triumphant cry, it is finished. Oh, I have goosebumps. And so that's the physical thirst that Jesus experienced, which brings us to the spiritual thirst. And so in spite of the reality 
and intensity and significance of Jesus' physical thirst. I am so confident that something deeper is being expressed in this fifth cry. Underlying his physical thirst is another kind of thirst that Jesus experienced in a deeper, more agonizing, more profound way on the cross, and that was a spiritual thirst. The evidence that leads me to this comes from the use of the verb thirst. The verb thirst, or be thirsty, is found five times in the Gospel of John, in addition to our text here. And every time it comes up, it refers to a spiritual thirst. Let me show you this. Uh, In John chapter four, it shows up three times. This is a very popular text where Jesus is speaking with the woman at the well. In verse 13, he says this. Everyone who drinks of this water, so he's referring to water in a well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, does it sound like Jesus is talking about physical thirst? No. Or how about in John 6, he says this to his disciples, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Again, not physical thirst. Putting all of this together, we can see that the thirst that Jesus was speaking about on the cross is a spiritual craving for God a longing that operates deep within the heart of every human being created in the image of God, a thirst that Jesus and Jesus alone can help us satisfy for all eternity. And here's the good news. According to what we just read in John's gospel, this universal spiritual thirst can be quenched and satisfied by the Holy Spirit whom Jesus promises to give to all who will believe in them in him, and who will then give to the believer eternal life. And it is this kind of thirst, this spiritual thirst, that Jesus is experiencing on the cross. And and so we got to be really clear as to what's going on on the cross, because Jesus, the man hanging there, was no ordinary man. No, he's the eternal son of God, fully God, fully man, the Messiah, the word who became flesh. He had existed before the creation of the world in the closest, most intimate relationship with the Father. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how their relationship is like this harmonious dance where they just lavish love on one another. And even when Jesus voluntarily left heaven heaven's glory to become a man, he still maintained throughout his life this deep intimacy with the heavenly father until he hung on the cross. And there, as he took upon himself the sins of all people, Jesus experienced for the first time in all eternity he experienced the agony of separation from God. 
The Father turned his back on the Son while he hung there on the cross in our place, inflicting upon him the fullness of his wrath to pay for our sins. We heard the the horrifying words of him last week when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because for an eternity, Jesus had always known the joy of intimate fellowship with his father. And now during this time of separation, Jesus wanted it back. Like he longed for it. He thirsted after it like it was the only way that he could survive. On the cross, Jesus is the supreme fulfillment of Psalm 63. Look at it with me and think about Jesus on the cross. Psalm 63 says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That is an agonizing psalm. It's like saying, without you, God, I feel like I'm lost and wandering this dry desert. I'm alone and weak. I'm desperately looking for hope anywhere that I can find it, but I can't find it unless I find you. My body is breaking down because everything else I've been filling it with has failed me and left me unsatisfied again and again. The only way that I can survive is if you give me a drink, a drink of you. This, at its deepest level, is the thirst that Jesus experienced on the cross. He was physically thirsty, yeah. His physical thirst came from, you know, that brutal physical suffering we talked about. But his physical thirst was only the tip of the iceberg. Jesus' deepest, most profound thirst was spiritual thirsting after his father from whom he was separated from as he hung on the cross paying the penalty for our sins. And here's the really beautiful thing about all this. And this is really what this whole series has taught me. The spiritual thirst that Jesus has for the father, his desperation that he has for intimacy with him, it doesn't stop at the father but it continues towards you and I. And that's a beautiful thing. Which leads us to our third point, thirst quenchers. It's a simple but a profound truth, the truth of substitution, Jesus dying in our place, The substitutionary nature of Jesus' death on the cross is expressed in this fifth cry. Some of the most precious of all promises Jesus ever gives us are those we referred to from earlier in the chapters of John about how Jesus promises to satisfy us and quench our thirst forever. And here in John 19, with Jesus on the cross, we see the source of those promises. It's Jesus' own thirst on the cross. 
The, the glorious truth of the fifth cry on the cross is that we don't have to be thirsty anymore. Our thirst can be quenched forever because Jesus was thirsty for us. He's given us a way to the Father. See, without Jesus dying on the cross, we have no way to get to the Father. There's something in the way, our sin. But because Jesus substituted for us and died the death we should have died, we now have full, free, infinite access to the Father in heaven, so much so that when he looks upon us with whatever you have done, whatever you might be coming in here with today, when he looks at you, he doesn't see any of the sin, none of the mess, but he sees you as he sees Jesus. And that is perfect and holy and blameless and as a child of God, like talk about divine identity and purpose. In John 14, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Has anyone ever had a troubled heart? Yeah. Well, our hearts have a way out of being troubled precisely because Jesus' heart was troubled for us. The book of Hebrews tells us We have an empathetic high priest who understands everything we're going through so that he can walk alongside us. In the same way how he can help us when we're troubled, our thirst can be quenched. We don't need to be thirsty forever precisely because Jesus was thirsty first for us. That's the message of this cry. That's the reason we can have great faith among us as we embrace this thirsty Jesus and we can have great joy as we receive from him living water to quench our thirst for all eternity. And this then begs a question for us. And I don't think the question is, are you thirsty? Because... I think we all are. We're all after something to satisfy us that we think will fulfill us, that will quench our thirst. And so the question then is not, are you thirsty? But what are you thirsty for? What are you looking to to quench your thirst? Is it, is it Jesus? Because if it's not, as we just read, you'll never be fully quenched. You'll always have a longing for something more. Like you may have be able to manipulate your circumstances where you still have seasons of happiness. You may have all the things you think you need, but deep down, your soul will be longing for something more, and that thirst can be satisfied today because Jesus said, whoever believes in me will never thirst. And I'm not ignorant to the world we live in. Like, I know, it's a a sultry world, to say the least. It's appealing. There are a lot of things that we can drink from for fulfillment and satisfaction, thirst traps, if you will. 
And ultimately, I'm not trying to say the pursuit of many of them is a bad thing, unless, of course, you're holding them to a higher regard than God or using them outside his design. So I'm not trying to come down on you or condemn you if you're just wanting like a bit more money, a bit more safety, a better relationship, more success, sex, whatever it may be. Those aren't inherently bad things. But what I am asking you is do those things truly satisfy you or when you're lying awake at night, do you long for something more? I've talked about this uh, before a few years ago. Um, I used to work at a tech company that designed technology, uh, basically a platform for lawyers to run their practice. And so I was a trainer. I would train lawyers how to use this practice all day. And so I was on site in Houston, and I was training this guy who was the most successful trial lawyer of the last decade in the state of Texas. He was one of the named partners at his firm. He had this beautiful office on like the 70th floor, this like really expensive scotch and decorations everywhere. And I was just training this guy. And he said to me, Jordan, can I tell you about my life? And I was like, I guess so. I have nowhere else to to go right now. I find it really weird, but okay. And he told me, my life is like I'm climbing a golden staircase, a circular golden staircase that has no top. He told me how he had the wife, the kids, great house, tons of cars, traveled to all these places, had all this success, but he says he can just never reach a spot where he's happy. He just kept wanting more. The more he worked, the more success he had. Therefore, in his mind, he needed to work more so that he would have more success. He said, I would climb, and I would climb. I would get to where I think I wanted to be, but then I wasn't happy, and I wanted something more. I would keep climbing again and again and again. It's like thirsting after an empty cup. And I think, like, about how many of us would be like, if, if I just had like a little bit more money or a, or a better house or, you know, this guy had everything that I think many of us would desire for and him, he wasn't happy. There's a, there's a Bible story that I think about so often, it's, it's wild. Like it really lives rent-free in my head. It's, it's when, when God frees the Israelites from Egypt. So if you don't know this story, uh, God's people, the Israelites, are in slavery for years and years and years, and and God finally frees them from slavery. He, He actually splits open the Red Sea. They walk through it to freedom. Not long after, these people who had been set free by God, they take all of the gold that they have and they boil it down, and they make a golden calf, and they start to worship the golden calf instead of God. I think about, there's a lot to think about, but I think about a calf? Like, why a calf? Like, a little baby cow? Like, if you're going to worship something, at least make it cool. Like, at least make a lion, a bear, something powerful or something worthy of being, like, they make a calf? 
It's like if you're going to worship something, don't you want it to give off some kind of awe or power or something that will give you confidence, but they choose a calf? It just seems so silly. And I think that God in that moment is showing us just how silly it looks to thirst after things other than him. It's like getting a drink from a little sippy cup. And within the thirstiness of our lives, when we're searching, when we're caught in the desert needing a drink, often what we turn to and thirst for for fulfillment can be just as silly, can it? And ultimately, it'll leave us empty and wanting more. And so what are you thirsting for? You gotta ask yourself this morning. It's because Jesus thirsted on the cross that he can quench the deepest longings of our soul. It's because Jesus suffered rejection and cruelty that Jesus is able to offer us hope and healing. It's because Jesus died on the cross that he's able to meet us amidst our darkness and replace that darkness with eternal light. A Jesus who did not bear any of these truths is of no use to us, but thankfully, through the mercy of God, that's not the case because Jesus cried, I thirst. Let's stand together and respond. And so, Heavenly Father, we just thank you. Like, we can't say it enough. Thank you for sending your son to die for us. And as we've seen in this cross, it, it's so much more than, than dying for us, but it's being able to be someone who experienced suffering so that we could have someone who could walk alongside us in our suffering. Someone who can quench us from all our thirst, from our unsettled heart that's just longing for something more. You've given us a way, and I just pray this morning for my brothers and sisters in here that you would reveal yourself to us in a powerful way. For us who have put our hope in things other than you, would you just show us that you are better that you are the only road to satisfaction. And so I just pray for courage and boldness for my brothers and sisters in here to just do the the beautiful yet difficult work of self-examination and just give things over to you that maybe we're hanging on to or we're pursuing as more important than you. Just help us in that. We need you. We love you. And if there's anyone in here who's who's really hurting right now, who's had a tough day, tough week, tough year, Would you just come alongside them and reveal yourself to them and show them how much you love them? You love them so much that you went and you died for them. And so we love you, we need you. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.